Hey, I have a question. Why is the mas- the prize of the masters a jacket? <laughs> and green, too. And green. Like, here we go. <laughs> so the golf green. Here we go. The legit good question that I don't have the answer to. And there probably is a real answer, actually. Yeah, there probably is. Yeah. The actual green probably goes green. hundreds of years. This is going to be a good one. So, <laughs> five, four, three, Two and one. Hello, world. Here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames, messieurs, bienvenue, welcome to the happy hour. Welcome back, listeners. We have a great episode uh, in store for you this week. I mean, last week we recorded on Monday, and what happened Tuesday? A catastrophe. <laughs> My name is David Oje, and I'm at MetalDave02 on Twitter.com, joined, as always, and thankfully, by Beth, who could make it. Hello. Surprise, awesome. surprise. Um, I'm at H-I-V-E-R-H-U-I-T <laughs> on Twitter. And Veronica. I'm at C-H-I-L-E underscore Pepper on Twitter. And uh, for those on YouTube, you can see that one of our blocks with the heads on it are blurred out, and that's going to change in a few seconds. We have a guest with us tonight. He is currently in his 13th season on the Montreal Canadiens beat, an insider for both the Habs and the NHL at large, and he is a senior columnist at Sportsnet that we found out, thankfully for some work that he handed us. Uh, You can find him on Twitter at Eric Engels. We have none other than Eric Engels. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Got to update that bio. It's actually my 14th season. Whoa. Rookies the same year. (laughs) I got that bio from Sportsnet. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a busy year, you know, we're a little behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, certainly so. So, Eric, um, you had mentioned uh, to us over the weekend that – uh, you, you put together an article and it's one of your one of your Canadians mailbags and it had some really interesting questions, uh, one of which kind of came to at least halfway to fruition uh, today with the line changes uh, that you were talking about. One of the Twitter uh, people had asked you about line changes, your opinions on it. And we saw today that uh, two of your lines came to be a reality. We have Duruan, Suzuki and Anderson uh, as our t- as the top line so far. And then we have. Uh, the really interesting one, I think, Kotkaniemi with Toffoli and Gallagher. Can you talk about that with us, please? Sure. What do you want to know? <laughs> well, of yeah. of all of we all the things. Questions in the media. I need an actual question. <laughs> oh well, geez. Well, I'm. Um, why KK and Gallagher? I mean, I I think the answer would be that. I think I don't think it's as simple as just Cockney and Gallagher and their specific roles do it. I think it's also that Josh Anderson had a great chemistry with Suzuki and uh, Drouet. And, you know, ideally they were looking for the best balance they could have in putting Armia next to Drouet and Suzuki, a line that worked pretty well in the, in the playoff bubble. And perhaps, you know, give Cockney a chance with two of the best scorers on the team. And you get a, kind of that balanced approach with the Deno line staying intact. But, you know, I, I think Anderson has played his best next to Suzuki and Drouet, and Armia didn't take advantage of that that opportunity that he was given. And um, Gallagher, you know, is producing scoring chances in the line with Deno and, and, and uh, Tatar certainly looked a lot better. But, you know, it's it's an opportunity for Kakaniemi to maintain playing with two good scoring wingers. And, 
and uh, maybe they, they achieve the balance they're looking for within these three lines. So Ducharme said when he first made his line changes on Saturday, when I actually wrote that column, the first changes he made that we were just discussing, he said that he might move around the right wingers as things go along. I had anticipated that it would probably go this way. You know, you're not going to keep Anderson away from Duran Suzuki for too long, given how good that line has been this season. I think his hope was that Armia would just really reach into his bag of tricks and his potential and take advantage of that situation. And it didn't really happen. So he's got to, uh, he's got to, you know, when, when they play a game like they did on Monday against Vancouver and they create great scoring chances and only end up with one goal and lose two one in overtime or a shootout, you know, you gotta, you gotta mix it up a little bit. And it seems as though the stuff is kind of the, the stuff that they're trying to incorporate in their game has taken hold. So I think he feels comfortable tweaking things more often now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I was wondering about that is um, with the games on Saturday, the blowout, right? Saturday uh, against uh, Winnipeg and, um, and then the game against Vancouver. What's your thoughts on Suzuki's play? Is he playing up to his potential? Or do you think he's kind of sliding along right now? I don't think it's a question of him sliding along. And as far as his potential is concerned, um, I think it's going to be maximized more so with Anderson than it would be with Armia, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the way Drew is playing in the last few games. But, you know, I, I was, I was guilty as anybody for, um, for kind of anointing Suzuki an established number one center. And I think early on in the season, I had even tweeted that it looks as though he's, he's there, you know, at six games in a row, he's producing a point a game. And it's just because I've come to know Nick Suzuki quite well and really do believe that he's such a mature person. And even Claude Julien was talking at the beginning of the year about how they're not at all concerned about a sophomore slump or anything like that. And neither was I, because it's just, the natural progression in which he came into the league, uh, you know, they sent him down to junior for another year and just his maturity and the way he approaches things. And the other thing about that I learned about Suzuki and being around him is that he, he has this Canadiana kind of value about him, about being such this, this humble, quiet kind of kid. But what's very obvious, the more you hang around him is that he knows exactly how good he is. And so I just felt that, also the two breaks, the, the extended breaks in the schedule from, you know, things shutting down and then them going to the bubble last year to uh-huh. uh, the bubble ending and them having until January this year, we're going to help him physically. And I'm not referring to whatever's happened with him so far this year at all as a sophomore jinx or anything like that, but you got to remember he's, he's 21 years old and there will be periods where it's catching up to him a little. He's also playing about 20 minutes a game and it's a physically demanding thing to do. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just, I think there's, there's some growing pains involved in that, but I also, there's, there's too much good in his game to be overly concerned about him going four or five games without scoring or going through a 10 game stint where it's not as easily as it normally does for him. Right. Um, Cool. I, I believe it was during it's either I think the beginning of the plans or towards the end of well towards the pause um last season Veronica mentioned on one of our shows that um she believes that a lot of times players have a sophomore slump because coaches 
now know what to look for with those players because they've been able to watch them for half a season or a whole season. Um, do you think that that could be something um, impacting Suzuki's um, production or play? Um, or is it just more of a, a simply just a growing, still a growing pains problem? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything, right? I mean, the coaches do figure you out to a certain degree and they inform their players on what your tendencies are and how you operate. But also, you know, there are more and more players themselves who understand what Suzuki's potential is and know that he's a player that could be dangerous on the ice. Uh, he's a very smart player. He's been, he's been called a cerebral player by not just me, but several other people. And, uh, you know, that the players that play against him will know him better than just about anybody else. And in a division now where you are playing the same opponent two, three times in a row, and you're playing them 10 times in a season, you have that much more time to scout their tendencies and do things that disrupt their ability to play. And like some teams in this division are really good at it. Uh, you know, Montreal, if you look at the way they've handled Dreisaitl and McDavid this year, how they've handled Matthews for the most part, um, and even Marner to a degree, um, and even Pedersen, you know, it's clear that they've done a great job on the pre-scout but also that their players themselves have really taken the assignments the, the right way. And the opportunity to play against the same player two, three times in a row, um, you start to develop a game plan and, and a way of playing as a five-man unit against that player. And Suzuki, because he is a good player and one of the most dangerous ones on this team, is getting that type of attention from some of the best players in the world right now. And that's, that's, that's what I mean when I say growing pains. It's, that's something that he just can't, prepare for it's something he just needs to go through and experience but the other thing about Suzuki which we know is that his potential is and his ability is there so it's it, he's going to find ways to navigate that and come out on the other side of it and probably emerge as an even better player than the one who started the year when when things get a little bit more important or a little get a little more heated you know he's just got to live those experiences and you know it might take him a couple more years to really be the, the player that I thought okay like wow he's even ahead of where I thought he was when, when I tweeted that six games into the season it might take him a couple years to actually get to that level where he consistently can be called a point per game guy and going up against the best players in the world night in night out and not feel the effects of it everybody goes through three four games where they don't you know but he's he has that ability and I don't see anything in his play even when he hasn't been producing as much as people expect, that would suggest that he's off that course. Uh, I think he's very much on that course. Nice. Do you think, um, um, Eric, do you think that there's anything to what Mark Bergevin says? I think there is something to what he says, but is it like just that, like some players get you there, some players get you through or, <coughs> you know, get you there, get, get you through whatever the saying is because in relation to Suzuki or in with reference to Suzuki, like last year, we saw what he did in the bubble after he struggled. He did, he did struggle last season towards the end of last season. Then we saw what he did in the bubble. And then we saw what he did with his team on that Memorial cup run. Like, I think, I wonder if he just flips a switch when it counts some, some, not if he flips a switch, but a switch flips when it, when it counts. I think Suzuki's both. Um, yeah. You know, I think he's just, this is just a classic case of a young player finding his way in the NHL and a young player 
who has such high potential and that ability. Um, I don't believe this is a question of a certain level of intensity that needs to be conjured at a time where things are not quite as intense as they would be in the playoffs. I think as you see, I think one of the reasons why Suzuki was so good in the bubble was a, because he was, he was refreshed, which is big, but B he's the type of player that the tighter the game gets because of his skill set and his ability to read things and his men, his mentality. Um, it, Cause it's such a mental game at that level. Uh, you know, his, his best stuff tends to shine through when it's on the line. And I, I don't think it's cause he's, you know, the general terms of, Oh, he's raising his play or he's raising his level. Like guys do do that. And that makes sense. Yeah. But, but I'm more thinking about like what's behind that and why that happens. And I think it's because the simpler the game gets a player who thinks in three dimension um, and has the intensity because Nick Suzuki, one of the things about him that people may not realize just seeing his personality and this is that, and just how calm and kind of quiet and humble he is. He's a very intense player. He is a player that, I even, the very first thing I ever wrote about Nick Suzuki actually was in a rookie camp where I walked up to him and said, you know, some scouts have questioned whether or not you have the intensity or the, the compete level to match the skill and, and this and that. And I think it's based on the fact that they don't see you playing at a hundred miles an hour uh, in a game that moves now at a hundred miles an hour. And uh, I remember him saying, well, that's a, that's a misconception because I'm extremely intense and I may not move at hundred miles an hour, but I, you know, I think that way. And I, I'm, it's cause I'm, I'm not looking to just do what everybody else does on the ice. I'm looking to do what I think is the best thing and where, what I know is the best thing. And it, I can't, I'm probably butchering what his actual quotes were, but it is a kind of a paraphrased version of him believing in himself and what he is and knowing exactly how intense he is. And I thought we saw, I think we've seen samples of that all the way along. It's just when he's kind of hit the wall or not, not produced at the level for a stint of games that people expect of him because of what his skill is and his ability is. Um, it's just because it's the hardest league in the world. Like it's the hardest league in the world and he's playing against the best players and he's 21 years old. Yeah. It's just going to go through it. Rock yeah, on. we're, we're very pro Suzuki on this podcast. Very pro Suzuki, even though I, I believe you guys are very pro everyone on this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> Sometimes, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean Suzuki's perfect either. You know, like there's no. there's parts of this game that he'll need to improve in that process. Uh, he'll need to find a way to to consistently play at the same level, game after game, and deal with the fact that he's a center of attention out there. Um, and he needs help too from, from his line mates, which I think, you know, he's, he's certainly getting for Drouet in terms of the way he's driving the play and, and Anderson, the way he plays is a, is a blessing for both those oh, guys. Oh God. So, yeah. Very lucky. So, yeah. Very Columbus lucky. is missing Anderson right about now. <laughs> Columbus is missing a lot of things right about now. Yeah. 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 They're back to being one. Pierre-Luc Dubois was a killer. And, oh, yeah. Shit. You know, Max Domi is – I don't know how people view Max Domi. I know I know what Max Domi is. And if he's used the right way, he's a very productive player. Um, but, you know, it's been hard for him there, obviously. Hasn't adjusted as well as he would mm-hmm. like to. They just have 
issues there in terms of the support that you would need. And, you know, well, the one thing about Max is Max is an incredible rush player. Yeah. Um, and the system in Columbus needs to be tuned for that to come out a little bit more, I think. And to me, there's no question about where he's best on the ice. It's, it's at center. But if he has to be one of your top two without much insulation, which he doesn't have outside of Jack Roslovich right now, it's, it's the warts kind of come out and shine. And that's, you know, that's, he's not a perfect player. And there are very few players that would qualify as perfect ones. So for sure. So we've been talking a lot about uh, forwards, you know, along the same lines in the, uh, in the article there in the mailbag, you talk about defense Habs um, today, the lines came out same lines. And of course uh, people are head, right. Head hunting for poor Sherratt um, because of uh, things uh, that, because of how things transpired at the last game. Uh, What are your thoughts about uh, the Habs so far, keeping the D together, even though some say split up the top pairing? Well, before I get into it, I just want to say that the goal that got scored by um, by Adam Gaudet was not purely on Sherrod. Um, no, right. The, the first mistake on the play, you know, when when we asked Dominic Ducharme about or it was Arpin Basu who asked Dominic Ducharme about it after the game, and he said, "Where can you know? Where do you see the kind of the, the mistake happen on that goal?" And Ducharme pointed to an over aggressive play in the neutral zone. And what happened was is that Josh Anderson. Jonathan Drouin was the F1 in the situation, and he went to go pursue the puck, which was on Quinn Hughes' stick. And Josh Anderson was kind of in close support to Drouin, but lost track of his man, who was, who was Bo Horvat on the play. And when that happened, and Anderson got, kind of got caught in no man's land, Deneau left where Gaudet was to go cover because Horvat was so wide open in a place where he could be dangerous and make a play. And Sherratt was in the right position, but didn't react fast enough to obviously cover where Deneau was coming for and make the switch. It just happened. So it's easy to break down in, in, uh, after in the fact, yeah, low motion, but in real speed, all that happens within a split second and uh perfect shot. I got, I got, Oh God. Mm-hmm. I'm so tired. I was on Vancouver radio today oh. and I'm, so so tired of um, <clears throat> not giving shooters credit for goals that they score. Like if you know anything about Adam Gaudet, he was a absolute sniper at Northeastern. He may have gone a month without scoring a goal, but if he gets a chance, like the one he got last night, where he can pull into the circle and take a half slap shot and pick his spot, he's going to score. Uh, whether it's Carey Price or Andre Vasilevsky or anybody else in the net. And if the goalie makes a save, it's an incredible save. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to defend a goalie or this. I just find that there's a thing now where like, if a shot is unscreened and it hasn't been tipped, it's automatically, it should be stopped. And like, we just, it's, it's annoying to me. Like we give credit to the shooters in the NHL who, who are literally like a guy like Godet is literally, that's how he made it to the NHL was taking the shot that he just took. So anyways, all to say, I don't blame Sherrod <laughs> for that goal. Um, I do think he could play better. I, I, we've seen better from him, you know, certainly last year and in portions of this year. As far as the pairings and staying together, you know, uh, I, was lo- I was 
when I was asked to kind of build lines and why I would build them and explain to people why I felt that, you know, you could potentially benefit from mixing all three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Kulak would benefit from a bump up with Petrie where they had good chemistry and their stability there. That Weber, who let's face it, has not been on top of his game for a good portion of the seasons this year uh, or a good portion of the games this season. Um, he could benefit from kind of the youth and the movement of Romanov and Romanov could benefit from him. Um, but it would mean a, re- a bit of a reduced role for, for both of them because it's pretty hard to expose uh, Romanov, no matter how good he looks uh, to a situation where he's playing against the best players night in, night out. Uh, but Jeff Petrie could take on a bit more ice time and Sherrod and Edmondson could mm-hmm. kind of have that Ash brothers dynamic that they look to have with Weber and Sherrod to begin with. But the reasons it didn't change was, was I think, and it hasn't changed is because Sherrod and Weber are comfortable with each other. Petrie and Edmondson have found comfort with each other. And Romanov is not in a place where they want to expose him too much. They'd like to shelter him. And I think they're being wise about doing that because even when you see Romanov, I don't think Romanov doesn't have a panic level. Like, no. <laughs> there's two, three guys around him he's not jumpy he's not looking to get rid of the puck immediately he's not scared out there but he is overactive his positioning is a little bit wonky he does tend to complicate the play a little bit too much at times instead of just making the simple one even if it means banking it off the boards or the glass and not having a direct pass come through he also has the poise to throw great passes up the ice like we've seen. So there's a lot of good there. It's just, there's a lot of, he's a 20 year old kid there. So, and, and a, and a kid who doesn't have full command of the English language and can't possibly understand everything that's coming his way, um, but is adjusting extremely well and has certainly found his place within the lineup. And, and, but there's times where him and Kulak together, they complicate things, both of them in their own right. So it's, I just felt like maybe you could change something here. I also think that in not changing something, we're going to see, and we haven't seen enough of the sample, but if I look over five games, I would anticipate that we're going to see Weber and Sherratt's ice time drop a good amount, and mm-hmm. we're going to take on more. I think Petrie played about 27 minutes last night, uh, which was at least, I think, five minutes more than anybody else on the, on the blue line, and that's probably what you want to do, given the way Petrie's playing right now. Uh, so... We could see some changes there. I don't know that any of them are imminent, but I think we're going to see some changes in the way they use the guys. It always comes out whenever Shea Weber is underperforming that he's hurt. Because it's not like he forgot how to play hockey. And it's no. not like he's, I, I don't know. It's, it always comes out that he's hurt. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, but you're right. It, it, he's been underperforming and uh, Petrie has been on fire. And um, yeah, if, if, if they need, if they need less time, I, that makes a lot of sense, but splitting them up, I don't, it's just, it's kind of like a cheap solution. I think, I don't well, think it's going to, well, clearly it's not, it hasn't happened yet. You got to look for solutions. You know, if the, if, if Sherrod and Weber are going to be on the ice for the majority of the goals against, um, you have to start to think about it as something that you want to kind of tweak yeah. with the change to. Um, as far as Weber's concern and his performance, you know, 
one of the issues that I have in the evaluation of Weber is that it's very easy to point out what he's not doing well at times, but you often miss what he does well and the little things that he does. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's, there's the other thing about him being hurt and everything. If, if we were around and in the rooms and I could go and talk to Weber and kind of figure out what's going on, um, I would tell you right now that he would never admit to anyone about being less than a hundred percent. But I also know Weber and I know about the lingering injuries he's had over the last three years. And there's more than one of them. And I'm sure that's a part of the reason why he at times has not been at his best, but I also, you know, he, he would not be playing if he wasn't able to play. And I think he'd be the first to, to say that he can play better. And I think he's, you know, like I said, there's things that he does and has done well that people don't recognize when they see him flub a puck on the power play or not make a crisp pass or whatever it is. There's, there's a lot of little things that he does on the ice that still make him as effective as he is. And he's, um, he's also 35 years old. And like, it's just, he's not a player that at this stage of his career, um, regardless of how reliable he is, that should always be the de facto, he's going to play against the best players every night and play 25 minutes a game. And it's not the best way to use him. And the truth is like, if you watch the way he played in the bubble last year, um, he was phenomenal. Like he was, he was so miserable to play against him and Sherratt together. And I think they need to preserve that for, for when they do get to the playoffs and there's ways to do it. And if it means splitting them up for a few games and putting them back together, when you play against McDavid and Dreisaitl or whatever it is, you know, it's, there's, there's ways to do it. And, and I think Shea, watch the way Shea plays. Um, the chances that he's playing with something, a bumper bruise or an injury is pretty yeah. much higher than it is that he's not, yeah. <laughs> but he's not going to use it as an excuse. And that's one of the reasons why no. I, respect, I respect Shea a lot. Yeah. Well, it's because it's only pain. According to Shay, the only pain—that's his quote. Only pain. pain. Uh, did you have anything about that, Beth? Um, I, I don't know. So, I mean, Ducharme did say that he wasn't going to change everything all at once, um, which I absolutely respect, understand, agree with. It's just, like, I've never, I've never played ice hockey. I've never been a coach or anything. It's just sometimes it seems like the forward lines are the easy pieces to move around. It's like it's an interchange. It's a Lego set. Like, oh, you can change these bricks around and make something different with them. And like, yeah, the forward lines are always being shuffled around no matter what team you're talking about. Like it happens, but it just, it seems like a lot of times with the Canadians in general that the defensive pairings are a lot less malleable in in the eyes of the coach and so I think this long-term stasis is frustrating for fans because they see a potent they see potential potential solutions and fans are not in the room they're not in practices so no we don't know exactly what's being said or what's going on um but like Eric said, like, like you said, you have to look for solutions. And so when there is one visible, it just, 
it gets like I said, it gets frustrating when it feels like it's not being taken into consideration. But for all we know, it could be. Well, I think they're always looking for different things to do, but at the same time, there is a certain you you hit on something that's actually true that Tusharm even mentioned himself that it's easier to change around the forwards than it is the defense, and one of the reasons is that the roles are so different from pairing to pairing and the dynamic and chemistry that builds between a pairing is not something that happens instantaneously just because you plug somebody in with someone who is a good fit. Um, it takes a long time to understand the tendencies, you know, uh, in playing defense and, and reading off your partner and communicating and knowing exactly what they're going to do. One of the key things about being a good partnership on defense is a predictability factor. Um, you know, when, I speak to Ben Sherrod about playing with Shea. He knows, you know, fans might get frustrated about a pass that Shea makes or, or the fact that he doesn't get to a puck fast enough or whatever it is. But Ben knows exactly what Shea is going to do when the puck is coming down his side and how he's going to erase it and how he's going to move it and where he's going to move it to and what, how he plays the percentages. Um, Romanov might be a great fit with Weber in terms of the fact that Romanov has this mobility and this puck moving ability um, that, that is not deficient for Shea, but it's not, it's not exactly his, his best asset. Um, I still think he's really good at it and even underrated at it, but it, you know, it's it, just because they're a good fit with each other, just because Weber's experience is a good fit next to Romanov is inexperienced doesn't mean that, they'll be on the same page fast enough with the crunch and the time crunch that they're in and the fact they don't have practice time. And it's, it's really complicated and it's not the same as forward lines and forward lines, you know, there is a certain uh, uniqueness to each forward line in terms of the way they play and Ducharme is certainly treating it that way. But at the same time, there is a kind of um, a rule of law in terms of how they're supposed to play and where they're supposed to go and where they're supposed to be on the ice that, and, and there's a certain um, compatibility in moving pieces from one line to the next in terms of having similar assets to move and mix and match. Um, I think it's way easier to, to make a move where you like on defense where you had just Edmondson and Kulak switch spots than it would be if you mixed all three of your pairings like I had suggested in that column. So yeah. You know, it's, it's complicated. It doesn't mean that it should never happen. Uh, and I, I just think you're right in one respect that Ducharme did say he doesn't want to just switch everything right now and that it is easier to play around with your forwards than it is your defense. So we'll see. See what happens. We're doing much in the defensive end right now, so I don't think it's a, an area that they're – you know, one of the big reasons why fans were frustrated with what they were seeing from the defense had a lot to do with the support for the forwards, mm-hmm. the way they were playing kind of loosely. And the, the game against Vancouver, I know people loved the 7-1 win that Montreal had over Winnipeg, but the way they played against Vancouver in a 2-1 loss was, you know, 10 times better in terms of how they supported on the back check and on the four check and how they were kind of making themselves available and skating without the puck. There was, it was so much better 
about that performance than what we saw against Winnipeg, especially in the first like 10, 15 minutes of that game. So, And also for Vancouver, all credit to Demko because he was lights yeah. out, honestly. So it um, could have been a completely different game. Than so was Carey Price. Yeah, and that's the thing. It was the it was a goalie duel for the goalie. ages, yeah. as one yeah. would say. It was maybe. fun. It was we fun. mentioned that a few weeks ago that um, those low-scoring games can be just as exciting to watch as the high-scoring mm-hmm. games are as fun to watch. But so, um, Eric. Oh. <laughs> it's been a week since <laughs> Stefan Waite was uh, relieved of his duties uh, in the middle of a hockey game uh, that the Habs were winning and Carey Price was on the ice. And so um, I want to get back to the yeah. fallout, all of the fallout of that okay, after. By the way. <laughs> I was wondering, I'm like, it's, we haven't even asked a question yet. <laughs> but this is, this, is, this is the one Veronica's really up in arms about. And I think it's super interesting. So go for it, Veronica. Yeah. So... What do you, for, first of all, um, what do you think of, you know, with all of the coaching changes, it seems to me that whatever was ailing the team has ceased to ail the team. And why was, why do you think weight was let go, not with the other coaches, but a week later and in the middle of a hockey game. And it is like, when's the last time that happened? Coach wise. I don't know. I don't, I can't, I don't have an example to cite, but uh, Mark Bergevin, I thought was extremely honest about why he did what he did and when he did it and what the reasoning was that it was done at the time that it was done. Um, there's, I'm not going to get into the minutia of that because yeah. he explained it. Um, and I, I actually do believe him to be extremely genuine in the way he explained it. The other thing that, it's clear to me is that I think the whole situation with Carrie left Mark wondering to himself why it was that this trend of him playing okay for the first month and horrible for the second month persisted for, you know, three years. Like it's at a certain point you say to yourself, okay, you know, the trend also includes him turning it around and being one of the top five goalies in the league for the rest of the season, it's that's been the trend every year. Uh, so why those first couple months? And what is it that it takes a month to get him out of it every time? Yeah. And uh, I think the answer is kind of twofold. One is that um, it almost always coincides with the team playing like shit in front of him, which is yeah. not a good thing. It's when, and every goalie in the league now goes through it. Like last year, Freddie Anderson was terrible in February for Toronto. And, but the other thing is I watched the games that Toronto was playing and the media was all over Anderson. I mean, they were really all over him and the fans were even worse. And I watched those games and one of the games was an eight, six game against Carolina. And honestly, like the way the Leafs played in front of Freddie Anderson gave him zero chance to get his legs back underneath him. And we've seen similar things with the Canadians. Like last year in November, I don't want to go too much over last year, but last year in November when Carey really struggled, 
it was at this it's a bad combination that at the same time the Canadians couldn't score a goal and they were giving up chances that were unbelievable like the grade a chances all over the ice and when a goalie starts to struggle with his confidence you can you can stop the snowball or you can add to it and you know it's i think it's the same situation the one thing that that if you're mark bergevin you have to think about is like carrie price is under contract for six more years and the move that was made was not only for the urgency of this season which obviously you know, I think Stefan Wade told a number of people in the aftermath that, you know, Bergevin specifically told him, I need to get Kerry right. And I need that to happen this year. And like, you know, it's important for us to make the playoffs and it's important for me and my job too. I could be the next one. And all that is true. Um, but I also think that it's important moving forward too. And that something needs to change in Kerry Price's off season. Um, and I'm not, not judging Carey for getting away from the game when he, when he leaves, you know, like it's, that's something he has to do. He's got a family, he's got three young kids, he's got a life outside of hockey and it's for him to enjoy it on his time. Uh, absolutely. Um, but something is wrong uh, in terms of what happens between him preparing for the season, him arriving to camp and him playing the first month and then the second month there's, for that to persist year after year, something needs to change. And I don't know if it's a physical thing. I don't know if it's a mental thing, but the more and more of Mark Bergeron thought about it and the more he started to ask these questions to maybe someone like Sean Burke, you know, some other things came back to him from technical elements in Price's game over the last number of years that just hadn't really changed or that had always appeared at these times where he's not playing as well. Um, I think Kerry and Stefan were on the path to fixing what was ailing him. But the long-term stuff that I'm talking about is something that has persisted with Stefan there. And mm -hmm. so, so I think that's why Mark said to himself, look, we, you know, he said he didn't do it to shake up Carrie, but to a certain degree, you know, that, that is the effect. It, yeah. it, it is to shake up Carrie a little bit and it is to make him realize like, Hey, like, I know you'll figure this out and I know you'll find it now. And I know Sean's going to help you do that right now. He's been through the, that was the other factor and not just in weight. The fact that it is Sean Burke who has had a career and had his ups and downs is the one distinguishing factor between him and Stefan Wade, who did not play in the NHL. Um, and you could say it doesn't matter or whatever, but it does matter. Uh, like, you know, to have someone who's the yeah. person you're closest acquainted to who has been through those things uh, talking to you is, is important. And I think the long-term effect, which is probably there well beyond however long Mark Bergevin will be here if things don't work out, uh, is, is real, you know, like he's gotta, he's gotta make sure that Price does what he does because Carey Price is not going anywhere. And every year I get these questions from this person and that person, oh, he's going to go to Seattle and they're going to trade him. When they signed that deal, they were married. They got married, and and Kerry understood that, and the Canadians understood that, and you know he deserved that deal. He earned it. Uh, you don't want to be the GM who I've heard people say, "Why did you give him that deal?" And this, it's like that's what you do. You don't really have a ch you don't have a choice. But you have the best player available at a given position, and he's available for a contract, and he's yours, and he belongs to you. 
you don't walk away from him being willing to sign a long-term deal with your team. Did Mark Bergevin want to give him eight years and $10.5 million at a backloaded contract that's virtually untradeable? No. Did Carey Price earn that with his leverage? Yes. And what? And so what? You become the GM who lets him walk out the door for nothing or you trade him to a team and he wins the Stanley Cup there or you finally get a couple pieces in and you're looking for, you end up, you end up, becoming a contender. And then the last piece you're looking for is the guy you traded away. It's a, it's a no win situation unless the player that you sign performs. And you know what, for the contract that he's making, which he can never live up to no matter how well he plays. Yeah. He needs to perform better on a more consistent basis because we know what his ability is. And, uh, They've done everything to give him the advantage too in bringing in Jake Allen and, and giving him the rest and doing all that stuff. So when Mark Bergman says it's not to shake up Kerry, well, to a degree it is. And, and clearly, you know, I think the decision to fire Wade, regardless of how it happened in the timing, because Mark explained why it was done in the timing and it's fully understandable if you know a bit about how this stuff works. It really is about not just the short term, but the long term with Carey Price. And uh, that's, you know, when people say he did this just to save his job, like the one thing about Mark that he said all along is that he would not do things just to save his job. Now his job is on the line, you know, this season needs to work and Carey Price needs to be good for it to happen, but he didn't just do it for that purpose. He did it because he needs Carey Price to be the Carey Price he expects him to be on a more consistent basis. That's not to say he won't, be bad for three, four games like any other goalie would, but he can't go 10 in a row where it's just, it's not happening and screws it for an entire month and the team doesn't play well in front of him and he can't be the one that stops the slide for them instead of the other way around. So Mm -hmm. so it's, it's a tough situation, but this is how Mark Bergevin felt was the best way to get ahead of it. Now his gamble needs to pay off. Sean Burke mm-hmm. needs to be the right guy for Carey Price. He needs to be able to connect with him in a way that is going to help him continue on the same path that he's been on over the last three games. And we're going to find out because he hasn't been in that position very long and he hasn't even been able to get on the ice with him yet. To that point, um, I believe... Uh, I know that's really long-winded, but... No, no it's perfect. You're perfect. No, that's that's A-OK. Perfect, <laughs> according to Veronica. A-OK, according to me. But um, so with uh, Mr. Burke, um, I believe that his um, his his quarantine that should be up. Well, next week then. Right. Uh, do we do we know a specific day March, when he'll actually be on the ice? March 19th, March 19th. So next Friday. Oh, wow. That's a bit of time. Huh? Still. OK, cool. Beth, did you have anything? Um, just that uh, I was not crazily ups- upset about Stefan Waite uh, <gasps> being <laughs> being um, let go. Not to say that I have any contempt or dislike of uh, Monsieur Waite, um, just that like Ashley, um, silent partner of the happy hour, yeah. um, said <laughs> um, that it makes sense because like, even though he wasn't, he wasn't let go at the same time as Julien, and um, Muller, he, Stefan Waite has been there through two head coaches. Um, he's been with Carey Price for uh, eight years. 
And while he's done amazing things with Carey Price, um, and we has, as fans have grown to love him and see him at practices and see him working with the goalie tandems that the team has had. It, like Ashley said, it makes sense. Like his, if, if these other two coaches messages have gotten stale and become ineffective, it makes sense that the same thing would happen with Stefan Waite. Um, and I agree with Eric that yes, even though, the intention or the main intention may not have been to shake carry up. This is going to shake carry up, not just with the surprise you have a new goalie coach, but with a new perspective and um, a new way, a, a new, a new perspective. He has a new perspective. Um, he didn't seem like a guy that was rejecting all this either. You know, he, I think he sees the value in having a new voice. I think he sees, you know, it definitely caught him way off guard and there's no way that he was asking for it. But at the same time, you know, I'm sure he's, you know, I know Carrie and I know how serious he takes this and how badly he does want to make the difference. And for him to go through this year after year has got to be incredibly frustrating, especially given the fact that him and Steph have been so successful at creating a way to but that they haven't found a way to pump the brakes on this issue that's happened year after year with him. Uh, you know, I think to a degree it's when he gets told that, okay, you're going to have a new voice and we're going to have a new approach and we're going to, we're not going to change everything, but I think, you know, something's got to happen here. You know, it's not to say that he's pining for it, but clearly he's on board um, and he knows what's at stake. And, um, you know, Mark Bergman put it well, he said, nobody knows better than Carey Price when he's not playing the way he wants to play. And he may not come out and say it or look like he cares about this or that, um, but he does. And he knows better than anybody else, even better than I do. And I know Carey, you know, like I said, we were rookies the same year. I've covered him his entire career. I know what he's about. And um, I know what he's capable of too, uh, despite a body that has has suffered some serious injuries and broken down to a, to a degree where he has to treat each practice and each game in a different way than he would have when he was 26 years old. Um, but he's, uh, you know, he was phenomenal on Monday in Vancouver and he's been great the last three games and he's building towards being that guy that we expect to see on a daily basis. And um, he can make a huge difference for this team. So it, they need him to be that guy. That's why this move was made. So, okay, so we've talked about Stefan Waite. I'm not going to talk about the press tour that he's been giving. Um, but we, so you and I, Eric. Why don't you want to talk about the press tour he's been doing? Well, because I, that's not something that I would have done. It's not something that I would have done. I of course, we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> I, yeah, I wouldn't have gone out there and told, you know, the, you know, relayed private conversations or, or like, I just wouldn't have done it that way. I, um, I respect his feelings and I respect, you know, how he wants to do what he's, how, how he's doing what he's doing, but I personally wouldn't have done that. But what about, what about him? Have you looked at it from his side? Oh yeah. That's what I, I mean, I totally respect his feelings. I totally respect his feelings. Had I been in that position, I, I would have wanted to do what he's doing this is not this is not an embittered 
press tour he's doing. He's not going out and saying, you know, I deserve this and I deserve that. And that. Mm. he's salvaging his reputation to ensure that he can be employed by somebody else at a future date. He also shed a lot of light on um, the negativity that came about on Price and people saying that something explosive happened between them, that Price was the reason that he was fired, that Price got him fired. And, you know, he shed light on the fact that- Yeah, that was good. Went and visited him. I don't think he said anything particularly wrong. He was extremely uh, graceful in his comments. If you read and listen to the interviews- I have. In terms of what he said about Mark Bergevin, in terms of what he said about his own role in Carrie's life, about Carrie himself, um, he was honest. Agreed on all points. May have been more revealing than you like or, or Carrie- would potentially like in terms of the technical elements. But um, I do think Stefan Waite in this, you know, was really caught off guard after, yeah. you know, a pretty good job and, and has a career that he wants to continue and wants people to know that like he didn't do anything specific that led to a lot of speculation within the marketplace and could damage his credibility. So. Yeah. Well, I'd, I, yeah, I, I agree. But he, he said a couple of things in those interviews that he knows are going to catch fire in Montreal. It's, you know, anyway, but agreed on all points on all of the things that he said and uh, sort of shed the light and took the part of me. What did he say? That's going to catch fire. I, I'm when he said that Mark Bergevin fired him to save his own ass. He didn't exactly put it that way. I'm paraphrasing. He said it more the, I think he said it more the way I, I said it, which is that Mark acknowledged to him that if he doesn't do something, if he didn't do something to get Kerry going in the direction that he expects to see him in, that he, that he could be the next guy. I think those were the exact words that Stefan used. And it's not a secret. That's, that's, no, it's not know, a secret. That's what that's I was saying to nine, the... nine years later, you know, like that's where he's at. Well, and also, I don't think that Stefan Wade has to worry about his reputation or his body of work or his, you know, it, it all precedes him and he's going to, he's going to be fine. Yeah, but there was a rampant speculation about an issue with Price and, um, you know, he's put in a position in losing his job and not having a voice that it's all his fault that Kerry has gone into this situation. I, I think, to be honest with you, if I were in his position, I would want people to know how he operate, you know, he came across as very humble and, and full of humility and understanding of the situation. Um, I actually think that, you know, in terms of he's got to take care of himself and, and uh, if he had come out and just thrown arrows at everybody, that would have been an ugly look and not, and not something that I would uh, recommend. But in this particular case, I think he came across as with plenty of humility and uh, ownership of the situation and, Okay. I don't think he did much damage to Bergevin, Price, or... Oh, no. It's so. just that one thing that stuck with me. I thought, I Tiny. wouldn't have given up that part of the uh, that part of a private conversation. I would not have. But it's less it's less so aimed at Bergevin, more so aimed at defending himself, right? Like he's saying, you know, I didn't do anything outlandish to get myself fired, that the GM came and explained to me in clear terms that if he didn't do something to spark Price, that he wasn't going to take a 1% chance that the work that they were doing together wasn't going to be successful. Yeah. That he could be the next guy. That's, and that's exactly how Stefan put it. So it's, it wasn't like he fired me just to save his own ass, you know, like he, he didn't say that and it didn't come that way and it didn't catch the fire that you're, that you're suggesting it might've. So. Oh, but except for on Twitter. That's all. You know, 
It's only okay. Twitter. It's, it just drives me crazy. Okay, so right, but speaking crazy, of but which, no one cares about that. Just so you know, no one cares. <laughs> I think I have the answer to all of this, though. I but don't quote me because I'm very bad at citing sources when they matter. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no, I think wasn't wasn't it uh, the Journal de Montréal that had the headline in French? Yes. That I was I was canned because the boss was trying to save his job, and the whole article was framed around that quote, and that's what looked bad essentially. And I think that's what well, we were somebody, reading. If hmm? somebody has that take, it's not an unreasonable take to have, and they wouldn't need, you know, they could use Stefan Waite's words to and, embolden, to embolden their own point. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think the fans in general have a have a good enough sensor and sniffer uh, in terms of like what take is believable or, or acceptable. And the ones that don't, that's fine. You know, like that's just who they are. You guys are a certain breed of fans. There's other people that are a different breed of fans. Like it's just, that's what it is. You know, like it's, (laughs) that's what sports is. That's, that's, that's the whole thing, you know? So it's, as long as you're cool with what you buy into and what you think and what you believe in, like, I don't. I don't know who would have written that take. I'd love to read it for my for myself. I didn't even see it. Didn't even know about it. I think it was Jay Oshima. Was it? I think so. I'd be very surprised if that's the case. Now I have to find my source I that Jay I cited. Oshima. This is the I worst night of my life. While Dave finds that, Eric. Great. So. I'm muting. The, sorry. But Jay to- is not a take artist, right? Like he's a news. Yeah, I think it was it was it was a journal. Um, so if he was just if he was just taking the quotes and filling them into his to his piece, but not actually like writing a column, which JF doesn't write a lot of of, of columns, really. Okay, I don't want to impugn JF Shomal. Yeah, JF's um, one of the one of the best. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I love him. I follow him. Um, Eric, so. Um, it was after Stefan Waits, the day after Stefan Waite was relieved of his duties and Carrie Price came before the media, you asked him a question and he answered you. And then the whole world set on fire. And then I said, made a tweet on Twitter to which you took, um, you know, um, 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 umbrage. Is that the word? No, not really. I just but, didn't. I just didn't. But, I want you to explain. A lot of people misconstrued what I asked Carrie Price and why I asked him the question. I have it verbatim here, by the way, if you need it. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah? You want want to read it verbatim, by all means. (laughs) Okay, so what Eric had the gall to ask for (laughs) Carrie Price at this presser. So, no, this, this is it. Uh, angle is a question to price in your long in your long experience in your career we've had a lot of interactions with you it's changed over the years where i think you would probably agree the less you say the better it is for you but at times it's also led to the perception that you don't care enough about what you're doing how do you feel about people taking on that perception to which carrie price replied it doesn't matter to me anymore (laughs) quite very very carrie yeah. So a lot of people, after I asked that question, within the 10 minutes of that press conference ending and me getting to my car, um, you know, some people went on the radio and were trying to dissect it. And what did he mean? And who's he talking about? Is he talking about the media? Is he talking about people? And just... Look, 
um, <clears throat> it came to my attention that a lot of people don't understand why we ask certain questions and how we ask certain questions. And in this particular case, I'm pointing out the media interaction specifically because of the fact that for years now, throughout Price's career, people have pointed to the way he deals with media. And I could have just as easily talked, referenced body language on the ice, because that's the other thing that people read into. So if I had framed the if I had actually framed the question and said, you know, I think you would agree in your interactions with us, kind of the less you say, the better it is for you, but it's also led to the perception that you don't care enough. And sometimes your body language on the ice has led to the perception that you don't care enough. If I had added that caveat, um, those, those I think are the two things that people constantly dissect and come up with this conclusion, this incredibly lazy, stupid narrative that Carey Price doesn't care enough. Um, and I wrote a column like a couple of years ago about how, how misguided this perception is. And I gave some examples of how much Price cares. And I said in the column, like, as reporters who are there, who have the discretion to keep what happens in the room sometimes in the room uh, and do that out of respect for someone like Price, like we've kept it to ourselves when he's first at the top of his lungs and kicked over a garbage can and, you know, screaming and doing all kinds of things, you know, to, to respect his, his dignity. And that these, are, these are private moments that happen within the locker room, but to a certain degree, we've done him a bit of a disservice because in not telling people that those things happen, it doesn't fight against the narrative and the idea, this incredibly stupid and misguided idea that he doesn't care. Um, a guy that doesn't care, doesn't drive over to his ex goaltending coach's house the next day and, you know, make sure that he's okay with everything that happened and that make it clear that like, you know, he feels so bad about the situation and like Kerry Price, like, like I've said a couple times here, I've known him his entire career. I know how much he cares. I know how intense he is. Um, he's a really different person behind the scenes than he is in front of the cameras. And he realized after he made this comment about being a hobbit in a hole in Montreal and not being shopping, um, that, that turned into a wildfire that he, he decided that a long time ago that he was not going to say anything good or bad. Uh, when things are going great or things are not going great because uh, he felt very much damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, and he might as well not. Um, I asked the question to Carrie that day for two reasons. Uh, one, in Mark Bergevin making his comment about Carrie knows when he's not playing well, he knows better than anyone, and he may, and he, he used these words. Uh, he said, he may not show you guys that he cares when he talks to you, but he knows. So that got it in my head. That was the first thing. The second reason I asked Carrie that question is because I can make the argument that Carrie Price cares, but my argument will have a much, much more weight to it if he says himself, of course I care. Like, of course I care. I, I care more than anyone about my performance and I want to do as well as possible. And the truth is, it doesn't bother me how these people feel. I only care what my teammates feel. And if he had used the opportunity, I wanted to give him that opportunity to say that because 
not just to give him a chance to defend himself against this stupid narrative, but it strengthens my argument if I have his words attached to it. And I always give people that opportunity. And I'll give you an example of it from the other side of it. Um, a few years ago, the Canadians started the season with like three losses in a row. They were in Washington and New York and they got pounded like six, one in back-to-back games. And in New York, Jordy Ben was the worst player on the ice. It was like, he was horrible in the game. And I asked to speak to him after the game and PR guy who's very protective of the players and loves the players and wants to protect them as much as possible, turned to me and said, what for you want to make a bad night shittier for him? Yeah. And I said, no, I want to give him an, op- I'm going to criticize him in what I write, but if I don't give him an opportunity to speak for himself, then what like his word should be attached to it, not just mine, because I know Jordy. And I know that if I turn to Jordy and say, Jordy, obviously what I'm going to write about you tonight is not going to be flattering, but I, I will be the first one who points out when you turn it around and play the way I know you can. Like, and he had shown that the year before. The year before, he had played great for Montreal, and I had written a ton about how he was really somewhat of a, not a revelation, but playing way, way above expectations. And he knew that about me. And so when he did come out eventually, because I convinced the PR person, hey, you know, I could say whatever I'm going to say, but he may as well have an opportunity to speak to his own play. Um, He came out and he spoke to me and I turned to him and said, look, I'm not, I'm not, not about to write a a praiseful argue. Like I'm not, I'm not about to praise you up and down about the way you played tonight. You were horrible. And, uh, but you don't use that word when you're writing. No, I don't use that. It's a big difference from some people. I don't need to use that word. And exactly. And anybody who's, well, you know, I don't think there's anyone who's actually writing on the beat that writes it that way. They don't say he was terrible tonight. No, they give you examples of how they struggled or how they did what they did that wasn't up to par. But I told Jordy that night, I said, listen, you want to give me some generic quote about how, you know, you can be better and you will be no problem. Or you put it however you want to put it and it's going to run and whatever I say about you that you played like shit. Um, but I will be the first guy to point out when you turn around and play well. And that's, and I want you to get, I want to give you the opportunity to speak for your own play and not just have my words attached to it. Like, who am I? So the players appreciate that there is an accountability that they have. Kerry can say that he does. It doesn't matter to him anymore. How everybody else feels about the perception or, or anybody who has that perception that he doesn't care. Um, I don't believe that. I do believe that Kerry does care. I, I believe that he cares not only about what he's doing, but he does care that anybody would think that he doesn't care um, with the pressure that's on him. And he's a quiet and sensitive guy. Um, who no matter how much money he makes to do what he does has a family and has integrity and has, and, and I don't think anybody wants to be viewed as someone who's above it and doesn't care when they're sacrificing so much and trying so hard to be, to live up to expectations that are so lofty. Um, That's a really harsh thing to deal with. Like if someone turned to me and said, I don't think Engels cares that much about what he writes or this and that. And like, I I work 24 seven. When I'm not working, I'm thinking about my work and uh, I take so much pride in what I do. And at times it's not, 
you know, last night, a Monday night, the game ends at one, the media availability ends at one twenty-five. The game was a one, nothing game for Montreal until 40 seconds left in the game. Oh my God. Vancouver win. You know how hard it is for me to write on a 2 a.m. deadline and rip. Oh <laughs> yeah. And it's not going to come out and be the best piece I've ever written. And I'm, you know, I'm going to think about that. Yeah. And if someone were to turn to me after that and say, mm, your stuff was okay last night. Okay, fine. I can, I can handle that. Uh, if someone says, yeah, you clearly don't give a shit about me. You don't care. <laughs> bother me. Like, cause I care more than I, I didn't stay up until 3.30 in the morning thinking about how I could have made it better if I didn't care. So, you know, whether it's me, whether it's Carrie Price, I don't think anybody wants to be told that they're this way or that way. And I also think that, you know, one of the reasons I reached out to Veronica is that a lot of people confuse the people that are on the beat and writing about the team on a daily basis and asking the questions in these media availabilities with people that are not around the team and don't know the players and don't have the interactions like the one I just described with Jordy Ben and think they know what's going on. And their job is to be really informed in terms of the game itself. And their job is to talk about things and their job is to ask all these questions and turn things into controversy. And, and we're all looped under this term media, but we're not all, we're not all the same roles. And we, and I don't, you know, I, I wish there was more to distinguish us. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't, um, it's nothing bad about what those people do. That's what they're paid to do. And they're very yeah. good. Yeah. Them, whether you like them or not. And they are the type of personalities that are kind of love, hate. Some people love them. Some people hate them, but they're good at what they do. They do stimulate that discussion. They stimulate that conversation and they really do know a lot about the game. Otherwise they wouldn't be in those positions to begin with. So they just, what they do is very different from what I do. And I'm not judging them for it, that I'm, they're good at what they do. And I'm good at what my, what I do. At least I think so. So yes, you are. Yes, Eric, you are. <laughs> that's, that's more what it is. And I just think, you know, I, I don't remember what your specific tweet was, Veronica, but anybody who thinks that like the media wants to just tear price down and this and that. And when I say the media, the media for me is the people that are on the beat and the people that are actually involved with these people and know what's going on. None of them are looking to do anything that is totally unfair and totally, you know, it's, they're just trying to do the job the best way they know how and, and yeah. do it their way. And we all want, all of us would like better answers from Kerry Price in the press conferences, but all of us also understand why he does what he does. Yeah. So it's, I'm not judging him for saying what he said. And I, I wish he would have had some sort of passionate, like, of course I care. Like who the hell thinks that I don't care and what, and how, and how could it not bother me? I would have loved that. But like, I do understand that Kerry Price is Kerry Price. He's not me. He's an introverted, sensitive uh, to himself kind of person. I'm, I don't also, know. there's nothing he can say. If he would have said that, Eric, it would have been torn apart. Already with the answer that he did provide, all of us who were listening to him on the radio that day, it was immediately, he doesn't care? What if, you, what if I told my boss that I don't care? He doesn't care about his job? And it was just like, oh my God, there's nothing. Well, that's not what he said anyways, exactly. right? Exactly. That's not what he said. But, but, but immediately it got... Twisted. He had a passionate response, like the one I was just talking about. Yeah. 
he'd be praised by some people for for fighting back against that narrative. Other people would read into it and says, why should he give a shit what anybody else has to say? Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Like, how, how fragile is he mentally that he would actually care? And, you know, because he, he can't care. Like, as much as he does personally, he still has to shut that out and focus on what matters. Because if he focuses on that, he's he's got no chance of recovering and being the player that he needs to be. Anyways, it's always <laughs> that I think the fans in general – I was really happy someone asked me a question about that in my mailbag because the fans in general are missing kind of some of the pieces of the puzzle. And like for every fan that's like you, Veronica, who doesn't want the media to pile on and like, it's enough with this shit and whatever. There's the other fan who says, why don't they ever ask tough questions? And why don't yeah. they the coach? And why don't they ask, you know, like, why don't they ask about things that I would have done if I was the coach? And it's like, that's not our job. Like that's not, I'm looking to fill the pieces of what I'm arguing. I'm looking, I'm asking a question specific to generate an answer that helps me construct or deconstruct an argument or fill a narrative. And sometimes I don't get that answer because A, I didn't ask the question in a way that it just came out of me perfectly. It just didn't. I asked the question of Dominic Ducharme the other day. I don't, I, I, he would have needed a codex to know <laughs> what I was saying. Like, what is a codex? Anyways, I don't even know if that's the right word, but it's it's close. <laughs> we know what you meant. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't come out the way I want it to, and I can't be there sitting writing down my questions because then I can't react to what's being said, and I can't. That's not who I am, and that's not what I'm ever going to do. And the other thing is, like, just our job is not to cross-examine Mark Bergevin as though he is a murderer on trial for his life. Our job is to get him to answer questions that we're curious about, that we have a plan that we're writing about, and to find out if what he says, and we're going we're gonna to use whatever he says to make our arguments, whether it's counter to what we're saying or whether it's that it feeds the argument that we're making. Like, I just think most people don't really understand why we're, why we're asking questions at certain times. And people that are like, you guys never ask the tough questions. I almost think to myself, like, do you watch the press conferences with Mark? It's not sitting there having a Coke and smiling and just being like, this is great. This is. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Speaking to that, (laughs) speaking to that, um, a while back, uh, we had John Liu on with us and um, he had asked, uh, I think that week um, or earlier that week, um, he'd asked Mark Bergevin a question and Mark kind of blew him off and like p- the people love John Liu because um, why wouldn't you? But um, and people were like, why did he, why did, why was he so rude to John Liu and like all this other stuff? And John Liu was like, that's, that's how it goes. Like, we're just, we're just there to ask the questions. We're, we're all, the best we can do is try. And I mean, I have been frustrated with people in the media with regard to players on the Montreal Canadiens, but people forget that all that, all that they can do is try. They, and you've mentioned puzzle piece puzzles several times um, in the last few minutes. And it's like, it's, it's like the questions are what help you find the puzzle pieces 
for what you're writing or whatever you're putting out. Um, and people seem to forget that a lot of the time. Like, I'll give you an example. Like, you're right. And I'll give you an example. Like, um, and in the Zoom atmosphere, by the way, we get one question post game per person. Mm-hmm. And during practice days, we get two questions. But like, okay, the story of the game last night is they lose in a shootout. And in overtime, they aren't able to generate the type of offensive push they wanted to, even if they had a better strategy. And I might be, I may have filled, I may have found the puzzle pieces for different things and different answers that have already been given. And I'm saying to myself, I'm going to mention something about their power play in this article. I need one quote from somebody on the power play. So even though I'd rather ask Ducharme about why he started overtime again with Philip Deneau or to, 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 to give that to the fans who are just like, ask him about Deneau, you know, like I need to, I have one question to ask. And if I don't ask this question about the power play, another reporter might not. And then I don't have a quote that I need to make the point that I was going to make about how the power play is doing. Like my whole article on Monday was about how they've had building blocks in place and that this was, like there was all this positive that came out of a loss. And normally I'm not about moral victories. And I I think that's all like garbage, but in this particular case, this is not one of those games that's going to discourage the Canadians, even though it's part of this losing pattern. that has been a part of, even if they picked up points, they've lost more games than one. And recently, this is not one of the ones that will set back given the way they played it. So if I'm going to mention all the good things, I want to mention, the penalty kill, which killed off for five on three and another penalty. I want to mention the power play, which scored a goal on one of two opportunities in that unit that's still doing great. And I want to mention the five on five kind of dominance for 59 minutes of the game. I have a quote from Dino about the penalty kill. I have a quote from Petrie about, the, about uh, the five on five play. I need a quote from Ducharme about the power play, which is why I'm not asking him about overtime and maybe somebody else is. And so that's why like people say, Oh, why didn't they ask about this and that? And it's, that's, this is how it actually works. And I just think it was great to have an opportunity to shed some light on that, not just in my column, but as we discuss it right now, you guys are three of you are fans. This is stuff that, that people really wouldn't know if we didn't tell them. Like, so it's, and there's space and room for the radio guys to do more of that kind of stuff if they really want some of those questions asked where it's an obvious subject of the game that if I was a pure radio reporter and I wasn't just looking to fill a story that I would be able to kind of hammer down. The other thing I didn't mention, by the way, is because everything is zoom and everything is live broadcast and public and all this, you know, there's less value in me say putting Shea Weber on the spot about a bad game than if I were standing next to him and there wasn't 15 reporters yeah. next to us and I could have mm-hmm. a conversation with him. And at one point during that conversation, I could say, so what were you doing on this play and why didn't it work? And because then it's not, I'm putting him on the spot in front of everyone and essentially just for the purpose of embarrassing him because whatever answer he's going to give is going to be very protective of himself in that kind of atmosphere. So it's, you just got to realize, like, you got to pick your spot. There's a way to do this that the fans would never know because they don't know what that dynamic is of 
walking into the room every day and talking to these guys and getting to those real answers. And, and it sucks for us as reporters. We're, we're missing that. I miss that so much. It's a huge part of how I've built the relationships that I've had and how I distinguish my voice from Arpins or Marc-Antoine Godet's or, or Stu Cowan or whoever. We all have our different voices. We all cover the same material, you know, especially if we're focused on the right storylines. And, you know, this is, this is a huge disadvantage that we have that we're dealing with because let's face it, we're, we're working, we're healthy and yeah. we're not asking for much more right now. And that's okay. Yeah. Right, right. Well, let's see here. Um, we've had you on for a good, a very good amount of time. And we're super uh, happy about that. Um, Veronica or Beth, did you have any other questions for Eric? I had a question. I had a question. Um, and hopefully this will be a little more fun than the other uh, things about you. About. Um, I don't know if you noticed, um, but a lot of fans are very frustrated with the officiating um, and have been for several seasons, not just this season. Um, the additional workload aside, how would you feel if referees and linesmen were added to the post-game media docket? It's a great question, actually. Um, there needs to be more accountability from the officials. Uh, I, don't subs- I don't prescribe to the conspiracy theories within the Canadians fan base that the refs are purposely shafting their team. Um, but it's okay. Canadians fan base is no different than any other fan base in that regard. Uh, there's a couple reasons why the Canadians don't draw enough penalties. One of them is that calls are getting missed. The other is that, you know, they need to have a system or that, and I think they're trying to implement a system really where they do play a bit more on the inside of the ice and that's where the main calls get, get made. And, and if they use their speed to their advantage, but there are some anomalies there that make it complicated, like five on five, they have some of the best numbers at generating shots from the high danger zone. And yet they're 27th in drawing penalties. Something's it's not conspiratorial. It's not because I think the Canadian, the referee see a Canadian's Jersey and won't make a call. I just don't know why it is that they're getting missed more often than they should. Um, it happens both ways in a game and fans freak out when I mention that someone deserves a penalty that they got. Like Paul <laughs> Byron, Byron in Monday's game, <laughs> full speed into Thatcher Demko. And yes, he tried to avoid him, but he still bumped into him at full speed in his crease. And he wasn't in control of the puck. He was reaching for a puck that he had brought in there. And yes, Quinn Hughes, helped him into the goaltender after Byron lowered his shoulders in a leverage move to keep Quinn Hughes at bay. That's a penalty. That it's, is I, textbook I penalty. How upset it made Canadians fans that I pointed out that that's a penalty. And they miss them on the Montreal Canadiens as much as they miss them on some of the other teams they're playing against. But it is odd to me that the Canadians don't draw more of them given the five-on-five numbers. And the level of officiating does require more accountability because I, I just can't understand how there's two guys wearing the, the stripes and the orange sleeves and two guys covering the lines and nobody seems to see what's happening. That's mm-hmm. so obvious in plain sight. And the right. game, the closer you get to the game, obviously, uh, 
if you're if you've ever been a fan and sat up against the glass uh, or if you've ever taken a tour of the press box and watched it from up there the closer you get to the game the faster it moves uh, but man like they they just they have to be better and the game is so fast that maybe that's the reason why they're not the game is so fast that even with four of them out there and two of them able to call penalties they're just missing some of them and and you know what like I can't speak to the accountability factor in the other leagues. I, in hockey, it's always been that if you don't do the job well enough, you don't make it further along in the playoffs. Um, I don't know if the refs are available for comment in the other leagues. I know that every NHL game has a, uh, has a supervisor who is particularly judging the referee's performance. And at one point, I remember, I remember this very distinctly. Game six, Washington Capitals in 2010. Very bizarre night. And this was a, this was a, not a conspiracy against the Canadians, but some stuff went down in that game that was like, how could this be this bad with this much on the line? And what happened in that game was Brian Gianta got called for diving by himself. Yes. Uh, And Maxim LaPierre got called for two diving calls. And the penalty, the penalty <laughs> uh, and this was game six. This was a game that Halak made like 53 saves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Won the game somehow, and it was just remarkable. But like diving that year in particular, like it was very, there may have been six instances the entire season where someone was called standalone for a dive and not a trip going the other way as well as coincidental minor. So it was like, I went to go see the supervisor. who was Kevin Collins. who's was a long time NHL linesman. And, and I said, what, what the hell happened tonight? Like, well, I've never seen that in my life. I've never seen, first of all, you're calling Brian Gianta for a dive by himself. He's getting called for that. And you have two other diving calls and like it's game six of a series where a team is down three, two. And like, how could you, how could this be this bad in this situation? And like the officiating was just horrible. And I remember him saying to me that like, if you think this was bad, like game five was even worse. And I didn't see a problem with those calls. And I'm just like, Oh, horrible. So, but you know, there's no public, you know, in, in a way, they have to protect the officials. They are the targets uh, for the fans and for, for people. They're, t- they're targets for everyone. So I understand the policy of not making them publicly available. And, and uh, But there should be a bit more co- consequences in terms of their assignments uh, and not just related to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And that means, that means developing more refs, and it means looking at the actual institution itself uh, to see if they need to tweak the, the system. I, I, I don't feel that the system is any better with two officials on the ice than it was when there was one. And my personal opinion is I would take one off the ice and I would give all three, all three officials that remain the ability to call the lines and the penalties. Um, I happen to think that more often than not, the reason why there's four of them on the ice, a big part of it was to break up scrums, uh, to help mm. break up, you know, 
stuff that happens on the ice. I find a lot of the times they're just, there's so little space on the ice in yeah. terms of the game and the coverage that if they're not going to do a better job calling the penalties, you may as well take one of them off the ice because it's almost like one of them is always in the way. So it's, and let's face it, like fighting almost barely exists anymore. And, and the post-whistle scrums, you know, it's, it doesn't generally lead to more fights. So I, I don't know. I, and I might not have the answer and the officials may look at me and think I'm crazy for suggesting it to be that way. Um, but I don't think the system is any better with two refs calling the penalties than it was when there was one. And if anything, they're, they've eliminated some of the excuses they could be using for missing the amount of calls they make. So, or the, the amount of calls they miss. So, but I'm, I don't know if I'm for having the officials get into a press conference after the game and dissect how they made this mistake and that mistake, because it's a game of mistakes. And like, there are, it's normal that they're going to miss things sometimes. It's just, it moves that fast and it's, it's that hard to see everything, especially away from the puck. And uh, even like one, there was one incident where Corey Perry took a high stick and a goal went oh. out. Yeah. But like, you'll see in that sequence that the official is right next to Perry when it happens. But what mm-hmm. you want mm-hmm. turning right as the high stick happens, and he probably missed it. Like it, it happened right in front of his face, but his face was this way. Like, and it's easy to just look at it on a replay and say, how did he miss that? But it happens. So like that. They, got, they got to make it better. Yeah, we yeah. are big proponents of um, making officiating better somehow, <laughs> some way. And accountability was one of the things that we talk about uh, pretty often and whatnot. Beth, that was an incredible question. I love yes. that question so much, yes. honestly. Uh, Veronica, do you have anything else uh, for Eric? I, I've asked my question, and thanks, Eric, for being so generous with your time. And also, yes. thank you for reaching out to me um, and having a valuable conversation around, the, you know, the blanket term of, of media, because that's just a, a, a word that's just become common for fans every time we get mm-hmm. um, frustrated or annoyed about anything that is um, hurting our players that all we want them to do is win games. And so you and our friends, John Liu and our Basu and others who cover the, uh, cover the team are fair. And um, we all, like I said in my tweet, we all know the ones who aren't, but you guys are fair and good and we appreciate you. And thanks so much for being generous with your time tonight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I agree. Thank you, Eric. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, guys, and I always enjoy the the opportunity to uh, to talk to people and about what we do and how we do it. And, <clears throat> and you guys are passionate fans, and uh, it's exciting to be a fan. And you and I think the best part about being a fan is you can be a fan however you want. You can be crazy and throw your remote at the TV and curse every player there, or you could be the ones who see no wrong <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, and as media, just know, you know, like uh, the people that cover the team don't have an ax to grind. Like they, they literally just want to tell the truth about what they see critical or in praise and just tell it honestly and just be accountable to the people who they deal with. And uh, that's what I try to do with the players. You know, I, I like that story with Jordy Ben. You know, I don't mm-hmm. hide from the fact when I am critical of them. 
Um, and I try to tell it both story. I, my, my whole existence is about telling the truth as I see it and telling the truth that's most representative of who these people are and how they view things. And the key to the whole job in my view is when I think about something that happened, whether it's on or off the ice, I try to think of it from the player's perspective. I try to think of it from the general manager's perspective, from the coach's perspective, from his teammates' perspective, from my perspective, from, I always am trying to keep a very global perspective of everything so that I can tell the truth that is most representative of what actually happened. And that's at the basis of journalism. It's how do we get to the real truth from every side and every angle and how do we balance it and how do we bear in what we're doing, what we're saying. And I think everybody that's on the beat is trying to do that. Whether they're successful in it or not is a, is a long-term constant process and we can all always get better. Uh, but it's an honest one and, and no one's no one is out there just trying to create a shit storm and <laughs> like no that's yeah agreed so that's the way it works and it was, it was cool to talk to you guys about it awesome thanks thank you so much well if you wouldn't mind hanging out during our fade out i'll just say bye to the listeners and we can start the we can start the fade out <laughs> but really eric it's it's it was really definitely a, a super pleasure to have you